Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you serving us. Please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. As we continue our study in the Gospel according to Mark, we looked at the end last week, both on Friday and Sunday, and now we return to the beginning here. We've worked our way through the prologue, and now we enter into the guts, if you will, of the gospel itself as Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. Galilee would be the predominant place of his ministry as a sign of the elite's rejection of Jesus. His gospel was much more palpable farther north than it was where the religious seat was. And so in fulfillment of prophecy, as we'll see here in just a moment, He begins his ministry in Galilee. This morning I want us to look at chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, as we see the king's message and the king's men. Please follow along with me as I read. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you now for this time that we have to study your word together. As we now reach the the peak of our time of worship, we have spoken to you and now by your word it's time to hear you speak to us. We praise you for this word for giving it to us in ways that we can understand. Certainly, it is a gift of your grace which we do not deserve. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would help us to humbly and expectantly approach your word for what it is, a gift of your grace. Lord, we know that your word teaches us and shows us of our own sinfulness and also of Jesus' sinlessness of how unworthy we are and yet how extremely worthy he is. And we praise you that your word also teaches us that by faith in him, we are credited with his righteousness. So we come to your word now as beggars, but beggars who know that we will be fed by your word and by your spirit. As we see the Lord Jesus begin his ministry, begin his ministry by preaching the gospel, by demonstrating his authoritative message and giving his authoritative call that was not ignored but immediately responded to, we pray, O God, that you would help us to have that very same response. For those who have responded in this way in the past, we ask that this would be the constant, every moment of every day response that we have and that we would continually grow in it. And perhaps for those who have never responded in this way, that you would open their eyes to see not just their need, not just the depth of their guilt, 
but the overwhelming grace of Jesus Christ, the true King. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is known by various titles, various positions, various actions. I think proof of that could be, we're not going to do it, but it could be if we were to take a poll this morning and say to you, you have one shot, one sentence to tell us who Jesus is, who would you say he is? Or perhaps even further, we would say you have one sentence, one shot to summarize the point of the ministry of Jesus. We would probably get closer, uh, answers closer to the right answer here, and certainly we would get some right answers as well. But you think of perhaps what you have heard of Jesus, the way you have heard of Jesus described elsewhere. It's commonly known and even commonly believed that Jesus was a good teacher. Even Muslims believe that. It's commonly known and even commonly believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. He was a healer. He was a demon caster-outer. Just made that up. He was a carpenter. But I wonder how often you think of Jesus as a preacher. As the Gospel of Mark continues to unfold, coming fresh off the heels of the Father and the Spirit's affirmation of the Son in his baptism, and then immediately the enemy recognizing who he is and moving in to attempt to derail his mission through his temptation in the wilderness, yet having failed to do that very thing, Mark takes us right into the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We know from other gospels accounts that this is not in chronological order necessarily, and that's not really Mark's concern. There were some other things that happened in between Jesus' temptation and this moment when Jesus began to preach his gospel, and we can see that even in John's arrest. But what Mark wants us to understand is that the foundation for Jesus' earthly ministry was his preaching. And so this morning, I want us to to see this section of Scripture in two parts. First part will be in verses 14 and 15, and we'll call it the King's Message. The second part will be in verses 16 to 20, and we'll call it the King's Men. So first, the King's Message, verses 14 and 15. Let me read those again for us. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark introduces us to what is now the earthly mission of Jesus, which will culminate in his work on the cross and the empty tomb. Most certainly, Jesus came to be the substitutionary atonement for sinners. 
But there was work to do before that would happen. And so Mark highlights for us this mission, and he does it by telling us of the forerunner, John the Baptist, already. And now Mark just sort of moves John out of the spotlight and highlights Jesus. The very thing which John himself did, which was evident when he told everyone listening, when he told the people who were concerned about him losing the spotlight and some other guy named Jesus creeping into the spotlight, John himself said, listen, I must decrease and he must increase. This is Mark's way of saying that very same thing. It's time for John to decrease and it's time for Jesus to increase. Now Mark will bring up John once again in chapter 6 and he'll sort of do a flashback to this arrest and he'll talk about his death as well. But we pick it up now after John was arrested. A, a simple phrase which just means that John had been taken into captivity. The, literally it says John was delivered up. And Jesus comes into the picture. He comes into Galilee, it says here. Now, Mark is teaching us something here. He's teaching us a lot of things. But in his placement of these events, in his skipping over of what happened in between Jesus' temptation and Jesus' preaching, and with that little phrase, now after John's arrest... Mark is showing us something that he's going to continually show us throughout the gospel of Mark. And that is that the preaching of the gospel and the following of Jesus will always come with trouble. After all, isn't this exactly what Jesus promised his disciples? How do we know it comes with trouble? Well, What happened to Jesus immediately after he was baptized? Trouble with a capital T. The chief enemy, Satan himself, came to tempt Jesus and to test Jesus. And with his failure, of course, he flees. But he would take up this ministry of trouble against everyone who would follow Jesus. And so Mark wants to make it crystal clear, and he'll do this again, especially later on when he brings up John the Baptist. He wants to make it crystal clear that if you are going to follow Jesus, it will be costly to you. And yet he already has made it crystal clear who Jesus is. And so it's up to the reader then to decide in light of who Jesus is, and in light of the significant cost it will be to follow him, the choice is up to the reader. Will you follow him? There's really no comparison whatsoever, is there? That is until the love of the world creeps in. Perhaps a desire for a reputation or or just perhaps a desire to hit cruise control and just ride out life in ease. After all, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Live happy, comfortable, normal lives? Mark wants us to know crystal clear that that is not what it is to follow Jesus. And so Jesus comes into Galilee and he comes proclaiming the gospel of God. This was foretold in the prophet Isaiah 
which we sing a song about every year around Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for who, who was, her who was once in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4, he makes it crystal clear why Jesus lived in Nazareth and began his ministry in Galilee, because that's where God said he would do it. And so it's in the northern realm of Israel that God said the light of God, the promised hope of God, the king of God would come to visit the people And it's there, Mark says, and so do the other writers, it's there where Jesus begins the foundation of his ministry, a foundation that is summarized in a few words, the proclamation of the gospel of God. Now you'll notice there's a reference to the gospel back in chapter 1, verse 1. We've already looked at it before. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And now in chapter 14, or in verse 14, we meet the gospel again. And this time it's called the gospel of God. Gospel of God is a phrase that gets used throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 1, for instance. It's a summary of what the gospel is. It's the gospel about God, and it's the gospel that has come from God. And Mark wants it to be crystal clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contrary to the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Rome or any other gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of God. You see how heavy on the front end Mark loads the deity of Jesus Christ? The very fact that Jesus is God. It's everywhere in the scriptures. And so Mark makes it crystal clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of God. Jesus is the gospel of God, and he proclaims the gospel of God. We're going to see this uh, as we continue chapter 1, but just to emphasize, and so you know I'm not lying, look with me down at chapter 1, verses 35 and 39, as we think about, perhaps you, you... are having trouble swallowing the fact that the preaching of the gospel is the foundation, is the bedrock of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did a lot of amazing things, didn't he? But here in verses 35 to 39, he's going to tell us what was the one thing he was devoted to. This is after he has cast out demons and he's healed many sick people. Verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark... He, Jesus, departed out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Okay, stop there. Now, if you could cast out demons, and you could heal everyone who was sick that was brought to you, everyone would be looking for you too, right? And if perhaps on a bad day, we'll call it a bad day, you could do that, it might go to your head, wouldn't it? Maybe you'd be one of those TV guys who buys his own private plane, rents out stadiums, stages people in the audience, says to them, okay, now when I wave my hand like this, you fall backwards. 
But how did Jesus respond in light of the tremendous popularity, in light of the fact that everyone was looking for them, for him, so that he could cast out demons and keep healing them? Jesus' response in verse 38 says, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach, same word as proclaim, that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching, same word as proclaiming, in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus himself, in response to the tremendous popularity of the amazing miracles he was doing, in response to the fact that people wanted more, Hey, we've still got some sick people here, Jesus. Can you help us out? In response to that, he says, let's get out of here. Let's go to the towns I haven't been in yet because my reason for even coming in the first place is to preach. And of course, what was he preaching? He was preaching the gospel of God. Jesus is known for a whole lot of things. And that's not necessarily wrong. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus did cast out demons. Jesus did heal. Jesus did perform tremendous miracles. In fact, John says so many of them that we couldn't even write them all down. But in the words of Jesus himself, the point was not what he could do. The point was what he was saying. And it turns out that the miracles, the active Miracles of Jesus Christ, casting out demons, healing, multiplying food. It turns out that those things were, John calls them signs, that pointed to the validity of who he was and what he was saying. So that what was supposed to happen, and we'll see it happen various times throughout the gospel according to Mark, but so that what was supposed to happen when someone saw him cast out a demon or put a leg back on that had never been there or open blind eyes or call someone from the grave back to life, what was supposed to happen was for them to go, whoa, how did he do that? I better listen to what this guy has to say. Could this be the one that God has sent, the one that the prophets told us was coming? Could this be the God with healing in his wings? And so Jesus prioritizes in his ministry not the miraculous, though that doesn't discount the miraculous. Jesus prioritizes preaching. And so as we think about the various gospels that float around and even various supposed Christian bestsellers, where a charlatan tells you, Jesus wants you to live your best life. Jesus doesn't want you sick. Jesus doesn't want you poor. Jesus doesn't want you suffering. If you're suffering, there must be something wrong. That is absolutely against the gospel of God. In fact, that's the gospel of Satan. So don't buy it. Does Jesus desire to heal people? Yes. Just read on. 
Does Jesus desire to cast out demons? Yes. Just read on. But he desires to do those things so that the world would know that the king has come bringing his kingdom. And in his kingdom, there will be no sickness. There will be no demons. There will be no suffering. What does he say? He will wipe away every tear from their eye. They will hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. And so what we have in the miracles of Jesus is a precursor of the kingdom of God. But what we must pay attention to, even more especially, and I'm not discounting, I hope it's clear, I'm not discounting the miracles of Jesus, but what we must pay attention to, even more especially, is the preaching of Jesus. And specifically, the gospel of of God, which Jesus preached. Otherwise, why do we have hospitals? Why are many of us struggling to get by on a week-to-week basis? The tricksters would tell you it's because you don't believe hard enough. But then who does that put the emphasis on? Jesus or me? And I thought that it was the righteousness of God that gets me into the kingdom, not my own righteousness produced by my own ability to believe. It's a lie. I know you know that. I'm preaching to the choir. This is for the people that listen later. It's a lie. And so Jesus begins his mission by proclaiming the gospel of God. And then verse 15 tells us about the content of that message that he proclaimed. What did he say? What does the gospel of God entail? Well, it entails multiple things. John, or Mark continues and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the gospel of God includes, first of all, something about timing. And the word for time here is not chronological time, but a fixed point of time within the divine plan of God. Just as Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus himself is saying, it's time. Which would imply for all of those who had been waiting, who had been waiting nearly 400 years for a word from God, and then the forerunner shows up. And he declares what the prophet said he would declare, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Repent and prepare yourself Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus takes up that mantle. And he says it's time. The time that the saints have been waiting for. It's time. And so it includes something about time. And it includes something about a kingdom as well. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. There are various attempts to summarize what you could 
consider the overall theme, the overall point of what the Bible is. And there are various explanations of that. One of those explanations is that the overall theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. It's what one of my professors at the Master's Seminary named Dr. Michael Vlock, who wrote a very long and wonderful book about that subject. That's what he says is the point of the scriptures. And I believe him. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, which for us brings up all kinds of different thoughts, probably very accurate thoughts. But let's go back into the minds of the listeners to Jesus. This is part of the reason why we came to the Gospel of Mark at the end of Amos. Because it was just a couple of decades later, after the book of Amos, that the people of God would never again know what it is to be the kingdom of God. They were an oppressed kingdom for about 600 years or so. And even in the preaching of Jesus Christ, they're oppressed by the Romans. But they knew that God promised that he would send a king one day and that that king would establish his very own kingdom, the kingdom of God. The prophets told about it. And this is what we saw at the end of Amos chapter 9. And so they knew to be looking for a kingdom of God. And now Jesus comes and he says, that time, the thing you've been looking for is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why was the kingdom of God at hand? The kingdom of God was at hand because the king was preaching. You remember in Jesus' baptism, the father speaks from heaven and back in verse 11 and says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I mentioned it then, but I'll do so again. That's a reference back to Psalm 2. And so that we understand the full weight of this idea of the kingdom of God and the one who is preaching it being himself the king, let me read for you Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah or his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we've got a summary of the rebellion of all of mankind. And then David tells us how God responds to that rebellion. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Which is what he said to him in his baptism, wasn't it? So back to Mark chapter 1. In light of the rebellion of mankind, God's response is first of all to laugh. Then to hold them in derision. Then to speak to them in his fury. And his speech to them doesn't involve speech in that instance, but involves an action. Setting his son on Zion. Jesus then becomes who we know him to be. The great divider. Everyone in all of human history 
is divided based upon their response to Jesus. Do you recognize him for who he is? And do you believe in him for who he is? Or do you reject who he is? Even if you maybe kind of like it a little. And so God's response to man's sinfulness is to set his king on the hill. What they failed to understand, however, what the prophets did testify to, what they failed to understand is before that king would rule in a physical kingdom, he would come to establish a spiritual kingdom and he would deal with the sin problem of his citizens. This king is the king who laid down his life for his people. And so we have the reality of the kingdom of God, but it's a spiritual reality right now, isn't it? Jesus rules and reigns over everything, does he not? Yet, does everyone acknowledge that? No. And so what we have in the preaching of the gospel is the declaration that God is in charge because God made you. God is the one who gets to tell you how to live. And that is the very message of the kingdom. No kingdom is worth any good if it doesn't have authority, is it? It's like, oh, I'll say it. It's like the United Nations. Come on. Can we do something about what's going on overseas? Anyways. No kingdom is any good unless it has authority. And unless it wields that authority. The kingdom of God, the authority of the kingdom of God, is centered in the king of God. And is communicated in his preaching of the gospel. And so Jesus declares the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And if that's true, then there's a way that must be, then there's a way that should be dealt with. There's a way that should be responded to in light of that news. There is a way that people ought to live in light of the kingdom of God being at hand. And Jesus summarizes it in two commands. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Based upon the authoritative truth from God, from the king of God himself, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now this is what you must do if you recognize the kingdom of God and if you wish to live in the kingdom of God and indeed if you wish to live at all. You must repent And you must believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two sides of the same coin. Yet sadly, many refuse to acknowledge even Jesus' own preaching of the need for repentance. But Christian preaching finds its pattern not in other Christians, but in the Christ. What does the Christ preach when he preaches the gospel of God? He preaches the nearness of the kingdom. And he preaches repentance and belief in that very gospel. 
To repent is to change your mind, literally. It's to, to stop doing something and to start doing something else. And in this case, it's clear that what Jesus means by repentance is to, to turn away from the establishment of your own kingdom or whatever thing that you're living for, whatever thing that dominates the, the ultimate authority in your own life, you turn away from that and you turn to believing in the gospel, trusting in the gospel, staking your life on the gospel. What gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel which Mark is going to continually unfold for us. A gospel which can be summarized very easily in the reality that God has made all, God owns all, and all have rebelled against him. And because God is just, he will not let sin pass. But because he is gracious and loving, he has made a way for sinners to be forgiven through the death and resurrection of his own son. And now it is up to everyone everywhere to respond to that message by turning away from your sin and by believing in Jesus Christ as the one and only mediator between God and men. The one and only sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. And this is what that book will help you to summarize very clearly. That's the gospel of God. And you perhaps don't realize it because it doesn't carry over quite so much in English. But those two commands are present tense imperatives. Meaning they mark the lifestyle of the Christian. Meaning... They're not something that you have done in the past. They're something that you do every moment of every day. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the castle door at Wittenberg, had theses number one as saying that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The first thing Martin Luther wanted the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church to know was that repentance was a constant and continual mark of the Christian life. And yet so often today, the preaching of the gospel fails to mention repentance. Jesus loves you and he wants you on his team Come on in, believe in him, and he'll help you. Now, the trouble with that is it's not entirely untrue. Jesus does love you. He gave his life for you. But that love means that you need to stop loving yourself. You need to stop loving everything else more than him. You need to turn away from that. That's called sin. And you need to believe in Jesus Christ. So repentance and belief in the gospel are to be ongoing practices of the Christian life. They're the conditions under which those who follow Jesus must live, always repenting and always believing in the gospel. And this does at least two things for us. First of all, it helps us to check the genuineness of our faith. I should just ask myself, you should just ask yourself, am I always repenting of my sin? 
And am I always, even right now, believing the gospel? There's such a thing in the academic world where a professor can get tenure, which essentially means that professor now has an unlimited contract. They are a professor either at that university or if they want to transfer, they are a professor for life unless they really blow it or unless the institution goes bankrupt and they can't pay them anymore. That's what every teacher, every, every college professor, university professor, that's what they strive for, tenure. Because when you're tenured, then, then you've made it. You don't have to worry about if they're going to hire you next year. You know they have to. Brothers and sisters, Jesus saves to the uttermost those who call upon him. But Christians don't have tenure in that very same way. A Christian must never think, well, I have repented of my sin and I have believed in Jesus. But a Christian must always realize I'm daily repenting of my sin because I realize it's right there before me. And in light of the presence of my own sinfulness, I am constantly believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last night I was laying in bed And amongst other things, I was thinking about my own sinfulness. And I was just confessing to the Lord, Lord, I'm so wicked. I'm so sick of thinking things I shouldn't think, saying things I shouldn't think, doing things I shouldn't do, saying things I shouldn't say. I'm so sick of it, Lord. I'm so wicked. And then I gospeled myself. Lord, I realize that these are just evidences that I need you. And I I, I realize my sinfulness, Lord, but I believe your gospel. I believe in your forgiveness. Even if I don't feel it, even if what I feel right now is the weight of my sin and the ugliness of who I actually am on the inside, I believe your gospel. I believe that you died for me. I believe you paid for my sin. I believe that you're forgiving me right now even as I'm asking you. And I believe, Lord, that you will carry me all the way home until the day when I will sin no more. Now, I don't mean to make myself the example of the Christian life. I just mean to say from from my experience, that's what it could look like. But in the preaching of Jesus' gospel, he says that the Christian life is one of always repenting and always believing in the gospel. And so that, my friends, is the king's message. I said it does two things. The first thing is that it helps us check the genuineness of our faith. The next thing is far more encouraging. It helps us to check our perfectionism. Any perfectionists in here? You don't have to raise your hands. I know. I feel your presence as a fellow perfectionist. The reality is, if you walk with Jesus for an extended period of time, maybe even one day, you will realize that you still have a problem with sin. And the reality is that the longer you go, the more you'll be tempted to fall into the pit that says, you know what, maybe maybe I'm just so wicked that Jesus isn't even going to save me at all. Maybe I haven't really been born again. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe I don't really believe 
Well, my friend, I want to encourage you that if you are ever even a little bit concerned about your sin, that is an evidence of the grace of God. People who are dead in their sin don't care if they sin. But people who are alive to Jesus Christ deeply care about their sin. And so it helps us to check our perfectionism because it helps us to realize that repentance is an ongoing practice in the Christian life, which implies sinning will be an ongoing practice in the Christian life, does it not? Now, we don't want to sin and we do our best not to sin, but the very fact that Jesus didn't say, repent in the past, but repent always and believe always in the gospel implies to us and teaches us that you will have an ongoing problem with sin. Paul calls it the flesh. So for the Christian, the question is not whether or not you will sin, But, Psalm 51, how you will respond to your sin when you sin. And that's how you really know if you're a Christian or not. And so it smashes our perfectionism because it teaches you, you're not going to be a professional Christian. You're not going to be perfect. But you should be and can be One who constantly looks to Jesus who is perfect. And in his perfect love gives perfect forgiveness every time we confess our sin. And so then we have the message of the king, the king's message. And then secondly, we have the king's men. Verses 16 to 20 follow on the heels of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus because they illustrate what it looks like to respond to the gospel of Jesus. Back then and now. So Mark continues, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You see the pattern? Jesus is preaching the gospel of God. He comes across Two different pairs of people, pairs that we know from other gospels, John's especially, had already heard about Jesus. Uh, In fact, Simon and his brother, Simon is Peter, they already knew that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Christ. These pair, we understand, were a team of fishermen. And so this man that they were familiar with already approaches them in the middle of their normal task, their occupation, he approaches them and he says to them, follow me. Follow me. He calls his disciples, but you'll notice that contrary to the way that the rabbis of Jesus' day would acquire disciples, the disciples did not pursue him. That was normal. If you wanted to be a disciple in those days of a teacher, you pursued the teacher and there was an application process typically and you had to demonstrate a certain amount of knowledge. 
But in the normal way of Jesus and the abnormal way of the world, Jesus does it differently. Jesus doesn't wait for them to approach him. What does he do? He approaches them. And my friend, isn't that just what Jesus did with you? Now we could all share our testimonies and we should someday. And they would be different in many ways. But as we realized, the farther we got, the more biblically mature we got, as we realized our story, and perhaps even if our story was, I grew up in a Christian home and I just have never known a time when I didn't know Jesus. That's a valid testimony for sure. But as your doctrine grows, then you understand that you were dead in your sin and there was nothing you could do to approach Jesus. So what he did in God's infinite and overwhelming love was approach you in your sin while you were dead and say, hey, wake up, you're mine. Grace, grace, God's grace. Who does that? Let me just talk to you this morning if you're here and you're not a Christian. Who's going to love you the way that this man, Jesus, will love you? Who's going to approach you in your disgustingness? Now, perhaps a Christian has because they understand the way that Jesus approaches. But what's the way of the world when someone is in what would be described as the the most abominable situation known to mankind is in sin. What's the way of the world? The way of the world is say, I'm going to go around you. I'm going to build my life so that I don't have to see you. I'm done with you. But what's the way of Jesus? I'm coming to get you. You're mine. I love you. Follow me, Jesus says. And just like the disciples in their day, you got up immediately. And it's been a stumbling process ever since, but isn't that why there's need for repentance daily and belief daily? Because that's the pattern of discipleship. You will constantly need to repent and you will constantly need to believe, but Jesus is constantly there. I highly doubt Simon and Andrew, James and John, I highly doubt they understood that then. But I have no doubts that they knew it after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sending of his spirit. I wonder what it would have, been, what it would have looked like to sit around in conversations and just listen to these guys talk about this event. Hey, you remember that one time when we were fishing? We were just at work had just clocked in about an hour ago. You guys were out in the boats. You were casting your nets and we were on the shore. We were mending our nets. And Jesus came. And we had heard a lot about him and we kind of knew who he was, but we weren't, you know, we weren't totally sure if we were committed yet. And then he told us to follow him. And something just grabbed a hold of us. And we just knew we had to follow him. We just knew we had to do it so much so that we left behind our occupations. We left behind our dad. 
Because we knew that nothing compared with following Jesus. And to sit around and hear them say, we get it now. We get it. What a glorious Savior. Wouldn't that be the motivation for the rest of their lives lived for him? And the rest of their life in eternity worshiping him? We get it. God's king has come. We're citizens of God's kingdom. What we see now with the eyes of faith will one day be seen by the eyes of the faithful when he brings his physical kingdom here. But for now, we look for it in hope. We know it's there. We know the king is on his throne. We know we're going to a place where we will be with him forever, where there will be no sin, where there will be no pain, where there will be no wars, where he will rule in perfect justice and we will enjoy perfect joy. We get it now. And so the king calls them to follow him and what do they do? They respond. I want to point out just a couple more things. First of all, I want you to understand that when Jesus says that they should follow him, he says, follow me. Christianity, fundamentally, is not following the Bible. Christianity, fundamentally, is following Jesus. And in order to follow Jesus, you follow the Bible. But it's a whole lot more exhilarating to follow a person than to follow a set of rules, is it not? Are you more inclined to obey the speed limit because the sign tells you to? Or are you more inclined, perhaps, because someone whom you really love says to you, hey, listen, I'm really concerned about the way you drive. I'm really concerned about your safety. I don't want you to die. Would you please just slow down? Which one's more motivating? The person, right? Whether or not you obey it or not. But the person is far more motivating. That's Christianity. Christianity is following Jesus, a living, breathing person who you can't see now, but who has promised you he's with you. And so Christianity is following Jesus, and then notice too what he says he will make them. I will make you become fishers of men. This is what it is to be an evangelist, to be a fisher of men. Christians all over the world have various occupations, but there's one occupation every Christian has in common to be a fisher of men. But before you get guilted into asking yourself how you're doing at being a fisher of men, listen to what Jesus tells you. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. He doesn't say, follow me and make yourself fishers of men and hurry up about it. He says, I'll make you become fishers of men. I want to give you an encouragement from the words of the late Charles Spurgeon. He says, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not only to remember what we are, but we ought also to think of what he can make us. It is, follow me and I will make you. We should repent of what we have been, but rejoice in what we may be. It is not follow me because of what you already are. It is not follow me because you may make, because you may make something of yourselves. 
but follow me because of what I will make you. It did not seem a likely thing that lowly fishermen would develop into apostles, that men so handy with the net would be quite as much at home in preaching sermons and in instructing converts. One would have said, how can these things be? You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants of Galilee. That is exactly what Christ did. And when we were brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our own unworthiness, we may feel encouraged to follow Jesus because of what he can make us. Oh, you who see in yourselves at present nothing that is desirable, come you and follow Christ for the sake of what he can make out of you. Do you not hear his sweet voice calling to you and saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? What a savior. He is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. He will make you a fisher of men. While I gave you an encouragement from Spurgeon, I want to give you an exhortation from Spurgeon. He will make you fishers of men. So be fishers of men. Spurgeon continues in that same sermon, How to Become a Fisher of Men. He continues, I think I may say to every person whom I am addressing, if you are saved yourself, the work is but half done until you are employed to bring others to Christ. You are as yet but half formed in the image of your Lord. You have not attained to the full development of the Christ life in you unless you have commenced in some feeble way to tell others of the grace of God. And I trust that you will find no rest to the sole of your foot till you have been the means of leading many to that blessed Savior who is your confidence and your hope. His word is follow me, not merely that you may be saved, nor even that you may be sanctified, but follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Be following Christ with that intent and aim and fear that you are not perfectly following him unless in some degree he is making use of you to be fishers of men. What did Jesus make out of the disciples? Fishers of men. What does Jesus continue to make out of his disciples? Fishers of men. God has placed around you somewhere, somehow, in some way, a school of fish, so to speak. And God expects that we would cast our net. That we would preach the gospel. And that we would be employed in fishing for men. But God promises that he and he alone will be the one to catch them. It's not up to us to catch. It's up to us to cast. If you, like me, find that sometimes that is a difficult task, keep going to Jesus. Keep going to Jesus. But I think Spurgeon is absolutely right. If that's not happening in your life, then you're not fully formed in Christ. Now, he did not say you're not in Christ, and I'm not saying you're not in Christ. But you're not doing what Christ told you to do. The disciples illustrate their response to Jesus' words 
And it's summarized in words like immediately and they left. They left their what were lucrative occupations. We tend to think of the disciples as poor fishermen, but they weren't. Peter owned his own home and John was good friends with the high priest of Jerusalem. In those days, the Sea of Galilee was known to have a a plentiful market for fish. When the Romans came in later in the late 60s, they seized over 230-some fishing boats. And we know from James and John that they didn't just leave their dad alone, but they left him with the hired servants, which means their business did well enough to hire servants to help with the business. But what they determined was that nothing of any worth was more worthy than Jesus. They understood the king is here. We want to be members and citizens of his kingdom. And we want to be employed in telling others about his kingdom. And so they decided everything else pales in comparison to the king into his message. And so what do we do with this? We understand that Jesus is the king. We hold tightly to Jesus' message. And we, as those who hold tightly to Jesus' message, understand that we are Jesus' men and women, employed in service to Jesus, Wherever he sends us, we go. Whatever he tells us to do in his word, we do it. Because we understand that he and he alone is worthy of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the demonstration of your authority not only here in this account that Mark has written down for us, but we thank you for the demonstration of your authority in our very own lives. We believe you to be the king. And we would pray, Lord, for anyone who does not believe that, that you would grant them that faith. We ask, O God, that you would continually make us fishers of men. We confess our shortcomings and our failures, but that's why you said that the gospel is both of repenting and believing. And so we repent and we believe what you say, that you will make us to become fishers of men. We throw ourselves upon your mercy because we know you will give it. We ask this in your name. Amen.